Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Ceremi. This is episode 18, Alfred Pleas, Guilty but Innocent. This is season one of Aggravating Circumstances. This season is about the story of Destry Cord McKinney, a musician, studio producer, combat medic, and father. It's a tale of hidden evidence, unintended consequences, and a wrongful conviction. If you're just getting started, hopefully you'll go back to episode one and listen to Destry's story. In our last episode, episode 17, we had the first part of an interview with Carrie Max Cook. If you haven't listened to that, definitely go to episode 17. This is a small interlude between part one and part two of Carrie's interview. Today, we're going to talk about Alfred, please, which does involve Carrie Max Cook's story. And then we'll get back to his interview in episode 19. The Fifth Amendment, which we discussed at length in episode three, and the 14th Amendment both have a due process clause. The 14th Amendment says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. On Wikipedia, where it discusses the Due Process Clause, it says the 5th and 14th Amendments to the United States Constitution each contain a Due Process Clause. Due Process deals with the administration of justice, and thus the Due Process Clause acts as a safeguard from arbitrary denial of life, liberty, or property by the government outside the sanction of law. This becomes really important when we start talking about plea bargains. So before we can discuss today's topic of Alfred pleas, we have to start with plea bargains because an Alfred plea is a type of plea bargain. Plea bargains are where prosecutors offer defendants deals. Essentially, they say, if you'll take this deal, we'll give you this charge and this conviction and this sentence. And if you don't take this deal and we go to court, it's going to be worse for you. It is incentivized to get people not to go to court. Now, you have a constitutional right to a trial. The more they incentivize you or pressure you or coerce you to take these plea bargains, the more they are depriving you of that right. For example, in Baltimore, they did a study of drug convictions. People that took plea bargains compared to people that said, no, I'm not guilty and went to trial The ones that went to trial and were convicted got sentences that were seven times longer. Seven, not a little bit longer, not 20% longer, seven times the time if you said, I am innocent and went to trial and were convicted. This encourages innocent people to claim that they're guilty. So you have to lie in court, which they make such a big deal out of. If you lie, it's called perjury. If you're lying under oath... And that itself is a crime. But if you are truly innocent and you risk going to trial and this system, which has so much not in your favor, which we've discussed in previous episodes, just right off the bat, they assume if you were arrested, you must have done it. Like you're you're just already behind the ball right from the get-go. If you take a chance and say, no, I'm really innocent and go to court for a drug conviction in Baltimore, you're going to get seven times the sentence if you get convicted than if you took the plea bargain. 
It's crazy. What they're doing is they're punishing people for their constitutional right to a trial. And this is where it gets really problematic because when you have um, significantly harsher penalties than were offered to you prior to trial, and the other part where it undermines the entire justice system is when co-defendants get minor sentences compared to other defendants who may have had less participation in a crime, but actually say, I really didn't do it and go to trial. And you get somebody who admits that they, for example, let's say a felony murder conviction, somebody commits a murder during a burglary, and they take a plea bargain and they get less of a sentence than their co-defendant who didn't actually kill anybody, who went to trial and said, I didn't actually kill anybody, and they get a longer sentence because they had the nerve to exercise their constitutional right to go to trial as opposed to taking the deal. One of the cases that I will try not to scream while I discuss is 1978, Paul Lewis Hayes. Paul Lewis Hayes had a forgery case. I'm not sure what he committed forgery of. Who knows? Forgery at the time was a two to 10 year sentence. He was offered a plea bargain where the prosecutor said, I will recommend a five year sentence. If you dare go to trial and say you didn't do this, I will push for the maximum. And they used a three strikes law to push for a life sentence. So Paul Lewis Hayes said, no, I didn't do it. I am innocent. Now, I don't know if he was or not, but that's what he said. He went to trial. He was convicted. He didn't take the five-year deal for the plea bargain. Instead, he got a life sentence. Okay, so here's where I'm, I'm going to go off on an aside before I finish Paul Lewis Hayes' story. So there's a podcast called Trial Lawyer Confidential. It's done by a criminal defense attorney named Alina Saris. It's really good. If you're a nerd about the law like me, you should check it out. One of the things that she talks about is she says, we only have so many metal cages. Like, that, that's just it. There, you know, and the answer is not build more prisons, okay? There's only so many prison cells and prison beds in the country. There's only so many tax dollars to pay for all those people to be in those metal cages. When you put someone in one of those cages, it takes the spot of somebody else who could have been in that cage. So when you take someone who committed a forgery and give them a life sentence, there is a violent offender that's going to serve less time because of that. That's the way the system works because there's only so many spots in those prisons. And so do we want the violent offenders serving their time or do we want to send someone who committed a minor theft or forgery taking up that spot? She presents it very well, and I like what she said. So check out her podcast. Moving on, going back to Paul Lewis Hayes' story, his case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Do you know what they said? They said that prosecutors have a legitimate interest in persuading defendants to relinquish their right to plead not guilty. And threatening a stiffer sentence is permissible and part of a legitimate system which tolerates and encourages the negotiation of pleas. The Supreme Court said, that's fine. It's totally fine that this guy was offered a five-year sentence and got a life sentence instead. That's no problem. It's fine. It's completely legitimate. And it's legitimate. It's in, I'm going to say that again. The prosecutor, quote, the prosecutor has a legitimate interest in persuading a defendant to relinquish his right to plead not guilty. Um, to me, that says that they're trying to coerce people into not having trials and... 
this is going to put innocent people in prison. And that's that's what plea bargains do, especially when the stakes are so high and the possibility of the sentence if you go to trial, is so much worse than what you're offering you. Now, I'm going to back up and say that is not justice. If a crime is worth seven times the time after a trial than it was without a trial, that's not fair. That's not right. This cannot be considered justice, and this cannot be how we make criminals pay for their crime to society by coercing them into pleading guilty. And this is one of the many ways that we put innocent people in prison. The story of Henry Alford takes us back to 1963. This was a year of upheaval. William Moore was murdered as he was demonstrating support to end segregation. He was walking from Chattanooga, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi, and he was killed. George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door to prevent black students from entering when they arrived to register at the University of Alabama. John F. Kennedy addressed the nation on civil rights for the first time condemning segregation. Medgar Evers, an NAACP field director, was murdered by a white supremacist on his drive home in Mississippi. Clyde Kennard, a World War II veteran, was returning home to Mississippi. Clyde's story is incredibly tragic. He was a World War II veteran. He was going home to Mississippi to help the family farm. He had finished most of a political science degree in Chicago and was going to transfer to the University of Mississippi to finish. There were no black colleges at that time, and every time he applied, he was denied on some technicality. He had no intentions of giving up. He wrote letters to the local newspaper. He was, in September of 1960, he was arrested and tried on falsified charges of stealing $25 worth of chicken feed from a local co-op. In a Mississippi courtroom, an all-white jury took 10 minutes to find him guilty and sentenced him to prison. He was discovered to have cancer and was released right before his death in 1963. 1963 had the march in Washington. It also involved the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church that killed four young girls. Malcolm X delivered one of his most important speeches message to the grassroots at the Northern Negro Grassroots Leadership Conference in Detroit. Law enforcement in Winona, Mississippi, brutally beat activists who were trying to eat at the white lunch counter. And so much more happened in 1963. The other thing that happened in 1963 is that Henry Alford, a black man in North Carolina, was arrested for first-degree murder. He was told that if he went to trial he would get the death penalty. A direct quote from him in one of his appeals says, I pled guilty because they said if I didn't, they would gas me for it. That was a very real fear in 1963 in the South for a black man, as all white juries all over the South were convicting black men to sentences they didn't deserve in lightning fast deliberations. He was told that if he was convicted, He would get the death penalty. He claimed he was innocent, but he was persuaded to plead guilty to a lesser charge to avoid the death penalty. He was sentenced to 30 years in a plea bargain where they convicted him of second-degree murder. He appealed this, saying he was forced to plead guilty to avoid the death penalty. 
I was listening to another podcast the other day where they mentioned that one of the main reasons that prosecutors are against abolishing the death penalty is it would take away some of their coercion to get people to take plea bargains. If you can't threaten with murder by the state, then they might have to go to more trials. And we will certainly talk about the death penalty in another episode. So Henry Alford appealed his case all the way to the Supreme Court. It made it to the Supreme Court in 1970, North Carolina versus Alford. And this is where it was decided that an Alford plea is a guilty plea in criminal court where the defendant does not admit to the criminal act and asserts innocence, but admits the evidence would be likely to find them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. In Alford's case, he had had a quarrel with the victim. There were witnesses. He had left the victim's house, and then the victim was shot after he opened the door. There were no eyewitnesses, but there were certainly circumstantial evidence against him. Yet Alford swore he didn't do it. He said he was innocent. The U.S. Court of Appeals of the Fourth Circuit ruled that Alford's plea was not voluntary because it was made under fear of the death penalty. It was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, who said, no, no, it's fine. And they called it a form of guilty plea in which the defendant asserts innocence, but acknowledges on the record that the prosecutor could present enough evidence to prove guilt. The Supreme Court said that the plea was allowable as long as an attorney advised the defendant that it was in their best option. They said it allows a guilty plea for purpose of sentencing while simultaneously protesting that they are innocent. As I've mentioned before, this is despicable. We are convicting people that say they're innocent or we're letting people potentially go that are guilty. There was a 2003 analysis in the Cornell Law Review about Alfred Pleas. One of the advocates, Judge Easterbrook, praises Alfred Pleas and says that they're an efficient constitutional means of resolving cases. Is efficiency really our most important part of cases? I thought it was about justice. Stephanos Bebus argued that Alfred plea should be abolished. This is a quote from the Cornell Law Review. These procedures may be constitutional and efficient, but they undermine key values served by admissions of guilt in open court. They undermine the procedural value of accuracy and public confidence in accuracy and fairness by convicting innocent defendants and creating the perception that innocent defendants are being pressured into pleading guilty. More basically, they allow guilty defendants to avoid accepting responsibility for their wrongs. And it goes on to list all the harms that Alfred pleas cause, such as harm to victims, because guilty people aren't admitting they're guilty and they're not getting sentenced as such, we're harming society because we're undermining the criminal justice system because we're saying you're guilty legally, but you're saying you're innocent. And so we're letting you do that so that you can avoid a trial and get a lesser charge. That doesn't make sense. It's an incentive for coercions. It's one more way they can pressure you into taking a plea bargain and not going to trial. It violates the rights against self-incrimination. Hello, Fifth Amendment. I have the right to remain silent against self-incriminating myself. And this forces you to plead guilty to something that maybe you didn't do. It also is very arbitrary. 17% of the people serving time in state prisons are there because of Alfred pleas. 17%. These are people that swear they're innocent but are serving time. I'm not okay with that. I hope you're not okay with that. This system has to be changed. 
The other problem with Alford pleas is if you are forced to take an Alford plea because you're innocent and it is proven that you are wrongfully convicted, you cannot get compensation. They will not declare you actually innocent because you pled guilty. And so therefore you lose your rights to say that you're innocent and to sue the state. So it's also massively incentivized to get Alford pleas rather than go to trial because not only do they get out of trying you and proving that you did it, they don't have to pay. They don't have to compensate you for the terrible things that they did by locking you up. So we're going to talk about two super famous cases that took Alford pleas. The first, which if you're a true crime buff, I'm sure you know about, would be the West Memphis Three. And I'm not going to go into this story in any detail at all because there have been podcasts and documentaries and I think there's, I don't know if there's movies, but it's been done and done again and redone. This was a 1993 killing of three eight-year-old second grade boys in West Memphis, Stevie Branch, Chris Byers, and Michael Moore. Three teenagers were convicted in 1994 of killing them in a satanic ritual. Damien Eccles was given the death penalty. Jesse Miss Kelly and Jason Baldwin were given licenses. And I'm not going to be equivocal. They did not do it. They don't meet the profile. They didn't all three even know each other. There is no way they committed this crime. They spent 18 years in prison for something that they did not do. They came back and did DNA evidence, which came back as the victims and other and unidentified people, and none of it matched to the three teenagers who had been convicted of the crime. After 18 years in prison, they took Alford pleas and were sentenced to time served and released. They stole the lives of these three teenage boys, put them in prison for 18 years, did not compensate them in any way, and then made them take guilty pleas to get out. This is not justice. The next case that involved an Alfred plea is Carrie Max Cook. My last episode was the first part of an interview with Carrie Max Cook. And at the beginning of that episode, I tell a snapshot of his story. He has a 43-year story of horrific misconduct by police and prosecutors that put him on death row in Texas for 22 years. He had four trials. The first trial was overturned due to misconduct by the Supreme Court right before, days before he was going to be executed. The second trial ended in a mistrial because evidence that they claimed that the killer had used to carry off body parts of the victim was actually found in the evidence and it wasn't missing at all. The third trial also ended in a conviction but was overturned due to egregious misconduct. So he was getting ready for his fourth trial in 1999, and this is how he wound up taking an Alford plea. Now, his Alford plea was drastically different. First off, as far as I know, it is the only death penalty murder case in the history of Texas where they offered the defendant a plea bargain to stay out of prison if you're really that kind of killer and you should have gotten the death penalty. I don't think they should just be letting you go. Well, DNA evidence was being tested right around the time of the trial. As all innocent people know, their DNA is not going to be there. I was listening to a podcast where an innocence attorney was telling the defendant that they got the results 
and it wasn't their DNA. And they thought this was going to be a, a big moment and the person was going to have this little celebration. And the defendant said, yeah, I know. I've known that all along. You're the one that didn't know that. And it wasn't what she thought it was going to be. And so Carrie thought that the DNA was definitely going to exonerate him, which, spoiler, it did, or rather the DNA excluded him as the killer. I'm going to read a little bit from Carrie's book, Chasing Justice. If you haven't read it, you should. And this is about how he wound up taking an Alfred plea. I'll explain a little bit as I go. So it's talking about, this is February 12th of 1999. Cheryl and Rocket were his defense attorneys at this trial. It says they received a fax from Dobbs and Skeen. Those would be the prosecutors in Smith County, Texas. February 12th, 1999, Cheryl and Rocket received a fax from Dobbs and Skeen outlining their final plea offer. The state's offer was that I pled no contest to the murder of Linda Jo Edwards, sign an attached stipulation of evidence, and be found guilty of a reduced charge of murder with rape dismissed as a count of the indictment. Then they would recommend a 40-year prison sentence with credit for time already served. Alternatively, Skeen and Dobbs would be willing to allow me to plead no contest to a reduced charge of murder under an open plea arrangement in which I would be found guilty of murder. This would allow Judge Jones to go lower than 40 years if he seemed it appropriate. The offers were available until February 16th, the start of jury selection. My position had not changed. I would never plead guilty, nor would I imply I was guilty by a return to prison. On the evening of February 15th, Cheryl and I sat by the computer at the Pecan Inn, our bodies illuminated by the white light of the screen. Together, we drafted my last and final response to all their plea bargaining attempts. I dictated most of what I wanted written. Mr. Cook did not murder Linda Jo Edwards. He is innocent. He has proclaimed that innocence from his prison cell for the past 21 years. He will not agree to any resolution of this case that requires an admission of guilt and a return to custody. Consequently, Mr. Cook rejects her offer that he plead no contest in exchange for a 40-year sentence. For purposes of the record, Mr. Nugent, that was another of his attorneys, never stated that Mr. Cook would be willing to plead no contest in return for time served. Mr. Nugent consistently stated that if Smith County were to make such an offer, he would present that offer to Mr. Cook. Because Smith County has never made such an offer, it has not been presented to Mr. Cook as an option for resolution of this case. Therefore, it cannot be speculated as to his position on such an offer. Cheryl folded it up and sealed it in the canary yellow envelope of her stationery. She would hand deliver it to Dobbs before jury selection began the next morning. Dobbs walked over to our table with a look of consternation on his face. I could tell that it wasn't the typical nervous jitters on the verge of a capital murder trial. It was something else. Cheryl, you never responded. What is your response to our latest offer? Dobbs asked. She pulled the envelope out of her briefcase and handed it to him. Dobbs took it and in front of everyone opened and read it. He folded it up, shoved it into his coat jacket and walked over. We can do the no contest, no admission of guilt plea, Cheryl, Dobbs said. I was shocked. What about the victim's family, Cheryl said. We can take care of that, Dobbs said. I don't know, David. This is so sudden. We need to talk to Carrie. Just then, the judge glided into the courtroom and took his seat at the bench. Dobbs immediately spoke to him. The judge announced the defense had 30 minutes to consider the state's offer. So they all went and got in a car to discuss it. What are all of you thinking? Tell me what's going on inside your heads. Carrie, this is so abrupt. I'm stunned. Something has gone terribly wrong with their case. 
but we're not going to have time to find out just what that something is. I'll tell you what I think, however. I think they ran a preliminary test on the semen stain and have at least got a blood type. They know you aren't the donor. I'd give anything right now to know what has caused them to fold their hand like this. They've just completely folded. It's extraordinary, Carrie. I haven't done a single day on death row. I believe we have a shot at winning. But I thought that in 1992 and again in 1994, if they pulled off another conviction, it's not me who has to go back to death row. I will stand by whatever decision you make. This one is all yours, Carrie. Cheryl, I think we've got a good chance to win, yes, but I know that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I just want to be able to put you in my truck and take you home alive. This is no admission of guilt whatsoever. I don't think it has ever been done in the history of Texas. Your innocence will be left intact. I think you should take it. After much thought, Carrie said, I want to climb to the mountaintop and tell my story from a warm home instead of a cold, lifeless death row cell. I will take the deal. His attorneys, Rocket and Cheryl, laid down a sheaf of papers called a stipulation of evidence that the prosecution had drafted for my signature. I read it scrupulously because I knew they never did anything in an honest fashion. It didn't take long before I spotted trouble. Cheryl, this reads that I agree and stipulate that if the state called witnesses, those witnesses would testify sufficiently to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the following facts are true and correct. And it says here that these facts will prove I killed Linda Jo Edwards. I will not sign anything that even hints that I committed this murder. I won't sign anything that confuses this issue. Carrie, that is standard, Cheryl said. Your refusal to agree to this stipulation of evidence may be a deal breaker. Then so be it. Tell them it's a deal breaker, I said adamantly. She sat down in front of her computer. Okay, what do you want it to say, Carrie? Quote, I agree and stipulate that if the state called witnesses, those witnesses, what? Tell me what you want me to write. Any language that infers an admission of guilt has to be deleted or I will not accept the deal. It will have to read something like, this is how the state's witnesses might testify, yes, but I do not stipulate nor agree that what they would testify to in any fourth trial would be the truth. Carrie, you do understand in all likelihood this is a deal breaker for Smith County. This is a standard form and they are not going to agree to you rewriting it to fit your plea. I just want you to know this before I type it up and give it to them, okay? Soon we all stood before the judge's bench in a half circle. The courtroom was packed once again. Then after having lied about me all the way to the United States Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., portraying me as a modern-day Jack the Ripper, the Smith County DA's office caved. Jack Skeen and David Dobbs accepted my revisions. The no contest plea was historic. No lawyer could recall a Texas judge, or anywhere for that matter, ever accepting such a plea in a capital murder case and allowing a defendant to maintain his innocence and walk free. After a 21-year struggle, my case was over in less than 10 minutes. Carrie Max Cook's fourth trial may have ended in 10 minutes, but his struggle for actual innocence is nowhere near over. I hope you join us next time for part two of my interview with Carrie Max Cook. Thank you for coming along for this ride. This is Aggravating Circumstances Season 1. This was Episode 18. Don't forget to wear your seatbelt. Don't forget those kids in the back seat. And everyone, please stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>